I've noticed is that in each of your films, there's definitely, um, I definitely see a change in terms of the setting. And that goes along with the set deck, the, um, you know, kind of the where the actors are situated, um, the locations. I mean, from, you know, Sticky Fingers to Stephanie Daly, the Innocence in South Mountain, I definitely see that um, kind of change. Is that something, is that a deliberate choice to pick a different setting in terms of, you know, each of your projects? Or is that something that just kind of falls in based on the specific project at hand? Um, it, it, it certainly is, um, particularly for the the three that are, you know, original that I, I originated the material for. Um but it, in all cases, there's a marrying of budget <laughs> and resources, yeah. you know, basically what what do I think is accessible um, in terms of each project? Uh, so, you know, and they really were made at a, a range of budgets yeah. and under a range of um, situations. You know, the last film was really written to be done for very, very little money mm. um, with the available resources yeah. uh, to, to the degree where, you know, it was pretty much prescribed. There's a number of films that follow that aesthetic. We're going to be principally based in one location. And, right. you know, um, there's one principal character, there's a smaller supporting cast. And, mm. and, you know, that was dictated from the minute I sat down to write. I was trying to write something I could make for just a handful of change. Yeah. Uh, for that last one, yeah. um, whereas something like the Sticky Fingers of Time, I mean, that was way back in 1997, like, yeah. you know, and uh, at the time, I think we first thought we were going to shoot it in high eight video. Um, that's how far far back that was. Uh, mm -hmm. People were just starting to do it. That was like, um, so you shot that in Super 16 and then 35, right? It was shot in Super 16, yeah. yeah. And um, and actually, one of, I think, the second film in New York to be caught on an Avid in 96, oh, wow, yeah. 97. Yeah. Um, but we did shoot on Super 16. You know, when that film was conceived, I thought we were going to shoot in high eight on weekends. Mm. And then it developed into a more sort of proper production that has a dedicated production period. And actually, that script was, frankly, too ambitious oh, yeah? <laughs> for... For the budget that we had, although it was a a, a very reasonable low budget um, at the time, uh, I think I was just you know I was not very experienced at the time. I had made short films, but um, you know when you first step into feature production from shorts, you know there's a big learning curve. It's sort of like not that I've ever driven a semi truck, but it's probably a little bit like yeah. I can drive this golf cart, so I can drive this semi truck, and then you're like, well, boy, yeah. all the corners are different, and it, you know, there's just things you you have to learn um, about size and scale and managing a production, and they have really direct creative repercussions. Um, and interestingly, then when I went to Stephanie Daly, and you know. Uh, we managed to get a budget that was four times the size of Sticky Fingers of Time. Yeah. I thought, wow, so many more resources. But in fact, we didn't have so many more resources because that script actually had a larger cast, more mm -hmm. locations. Yeah. Um, and rule of thumb, you know, is is the more company moves and <laughs> the more company moves you have or myriad scenes where you're changing the light, lighting, makeup, time of day, et cetera. All that really impacts tightly scheduled indie films. And the interesting thing is, I think, you know, all all four of the films that we've mentioned had principal photography periods of between 15 and like 25 days, maybe an average mm. of, you know, you, you know what I mean? And, and yeah. none of them have had, you know, more than than 21, really 21 days, even the one that went to 25, that was under special circumstance. So they, they've all been met on, made under similarly hectic schedules, um, but at very different budget ranges um, and with scripts that were sort of designed very differently. So I know I've kind of answered this question just talking about budget and locations, which mm. may not be the sort of juicy stuff, but um, I can talk more about the emotional No, this is good. This is juicy. Intent, I think this is really but, juicy. But, but no. I... Yeah, I do think, especially if you're, you know, if you're an emergent filmmaker, and oddly, I've been emergent my whole career, like I've never felt like, oh, great, now I just know I can get X budget and work regularly. I've never mm. had that um, 
luxury. So I'm always into figuring out what can I do next? What am I going to manage? You know, these practical resources, it's sort of like a decision a painter would make. What can I afford to paint on? What can I afford to paint with? And Mm -hmm. and that honestly uh, sets a lot of your thinking in motion. Well, th- these are kind of interesting points, and I definitely want to unpack unpack them. You know, by each of your pictures, but they're all, I guess, they're all in New York, right? I mean, that's yeah. in some in some capacity. Is that where you grew up? I grew up in upstate New York, um, mm. so I was, you know, born in Catskill um, and kind of grew up in in that area, um, and uh, came to the city in, you know, I think eighty six or so, nineteen eighty six. So um, I've either lived in the Catskills or here in New York City my whole uh, life, pretty much, and um, have always based the film <laughs> in yeah. films in one or two places. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think I had um, twins a few years before Stephanie Daly, so oh, I wow. think they were three or four when we made that film. And you know, from the minute you know I had these little kids, I kind of knew I was going to be weaving parenting and uh, filmmaking together. Yeah. And then I became a teacher. I think in oh gosh, I can't remember when I actually started teaching in Columbia. Yeah. I want to say two thousand and it was either two thousand nine and or two thousand twelve, okay. but. Uh-huh. I'll try and do some math and come back no, to you okay. on that. I should remember, but it's been no, it's right. been well over a decade, so maybe it was mm. 2009. But then, no. when teaching full time became part of my life, um, you know, that was also woven in, and those are also reasons I really need to work from home. And then the other reason is I'm a writer director, so I tend yeah. to write from, you know, I certainly not everything's autobiographical, yeah. but but I'm interested in things that I have some emotional access to or experiential access to. Um, so that, you know, cause I think that's probably where my most relevant ideas come from. Wait, so did you grow up next to like Kutcher's and all those resorts, uh, and up in the Catskill? Uh, well, I mean, I, I was born in, in Catskill, but actually, no, it was more like the, the towns I lived in were like New Paltz, Kingston, Woodstock. Oh, okay. Um, so I lived in that area. Actually, they are kind of near those resorts, but I wasn't, you know, part of that, that world. Probably um, closer to a SUNY though, right? Yeah, actually, you know, I went to elementary school in a school that was um, like part of the teacher's college at SUNY New Paltz. Hmm. Um, And and that actually was a huge creative influence on me, um, strangely. (laughs) How? how, In what way? Um, You know, it was kind of progressive school. They were training. uh, They were training student teachers there. And it Hmm. closed. It closed in the I want to say either. 80 or very early 80s, 1980s, yeah. it, it sort of shut down. Um, it was called the Vandenberg Learning Center. But, you know, there were a lot of progressive ideas there. And mm-hmm. uh, it fostered a kind of independence and love of self-learning. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not really a very good musician and I don't play at all. But I remember I played uh, like the flute and I had a teacher who just taught us all to play jazz and improvise. Oh, um, yeah. And I assume we were fairly terrible, but just the the mandate to do that kind of thing yeah. when you're like eight or nine years old, when you're very young, yeah. I think I brought that to filmmaking, mm-hmm. you know, to teaching myself filmmaking. I kind of figured if I could, you know, improvise in a jazz yeah. band, I was like, well, I can get a camera and learn how to do this, which is what I did with Super 8 Film. I was, you know, originally kind of doing it myself again in the in the um in those days I, yeah i want to think was it actually uh it probably was yeah, the late 70s how okay i have to do math now <laughs> do math. okay so all right are you working out the calculator i know i'm trying to figure out like, okay <laughs> trying to figure out basically how old i am and how old I was okay you no know, i'm just kidding but yeah. um let me think let's see so that was um a, a while ago it, it was 70, a while ago, 78, I was, so in 70, oh no, so it was, it was the early, very early 80s, so I, okay. I, I, I remember I kind of uh, talked my way into, you know, a grant to buy someone's used Super 8 camera, oh, and, wow. um, and bought like a used Super 8 camera and a little splicer and a projector, wow. and nice. got the Lenny Lipton book and mm. was like shooting films in my basement when I was like 14, 15, 16. Where, where and, did that, where was that seed planted? I mean, how did you um, get into that? 
Oh, actually, it was because I my parents would take me to a calendar house, um, which is just like an art cinema, basically. Okay. Only, it's still there, upstate films in Rhinebeck. And we didn't have we didn't get TV reception where we were. So uh, but like once a week, we'd go to a movie and you kind of didn't you'd watch whatever was on the yeah. calendar. And yeah. most of these were, you know, they were, you know, they were films like. um you know, they were like Jim Jarmusch films or Spike Lee films oh, or Fellini wow. films, you know, so they were they were really out there and probably a lot of them were not age appropriate. But but that to me was like the window into the the oddly, you know, could barely get Sesame Street on our television, wow. um, could barely get like happy days, you know, <laughs> like didn't come in very well, but I could go see a Fellini film once a week. So I think that imprinted really deeply. And um you know, I knew people could make films on Super 8. I'd never seen a Super 8 film. I didn't really understand that whole world, but I just thought, oh, that's... I think I read an article that Steven Spielberg made films with Super 8. So I was yeah. like, oh, I should get one of those. Yeah. Um, so I did that. Um, and then, of course, you know, I moved to the city and learned more about filmmaking. But I do think, you know, it's ridiculous and not very interesting, probably, and not very in focus as those early films were, um, you know, for better or worse, I went into it with a great deal of naivete, which is impossible for young filmmakers now, because you can all look up how difficult <laughs> it is. And I just had there's, no idea. There's still, there's still a great deal of naivete, I think, right? I mean, if you haven't done something, then it doesn't really matter how, well, much, that's true. how many maybe of the archives the, you can untag. I mean, yeah, maybe yeah. about the difficulty, but like, right. I didn't really know there were no female filmmakers. Like I didn't mm. under like I didn't understand the economics or the reality or um, any of that I was doing. I didn't understand that I was doing something difficult until it was way too late. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it would have stopped me or not, but um, but yeah, I had a lot to learn. It's not like you know my self teaching was you know, in any way successful, except that except that I think it fostered a certain persistence of spirit. So you were watching like Stranger, Strangers in, Par uh, in Paradise, oh, yeah. like all those yeah. Jarmusch films and then uh, Spike yeah. Lee. And, and that was super exciting. And, um, you know, also Julian Armstrong and yeah. um, My Brilliant yeah. Career. That's mm -hmm. a really important one from 1979. Wow. She recently did Little Women. Um, oh, okay. And I believe that she did... Yes. Yeah, so I saw... Oh, she made Starstruck in 82. She made My Brilliant Career in 1979. She made Starstruck in 1982. And she made mm. High Tide in 1987. And she's made many films since then and worked in television. Yeah. But, you know, I remember seeing those films. And, um, you know, the piano came a bit later in 93. Yeah. But... Um, even before that, she was uh, Jane Campion was yeah, you know, yeah. making films that I was I was noticing. So, you know, watching Spike Lee and Jarmusch and Armstrong and Campion, kind of, I kind of just figured, oh, this is where we're going. This is what's happening, and I'll just be like those guys. <laughs> yeah, kind of a tangent. Uh, did you see uh, Did you see Margaret that Kenny uh, Lonergan film? I haven't seen Margaret. yet. You gotta no. see it because uh, you talked about you mentioned the piano with uh, Paquin because mm -hmm. Anna was in that. Oh, and I just saw, I just saw it a couple of days ago. It's three and a half hours. It's the, he, he says, um, extended, uh, his director's cut. It's really good. Um, but she's oh, wow. incredible yeah, in it. it. So, so those were yeah, kind of the, interesting. yeah, she, she chooses really interesting, especially that stuff that she did with like, uh, Bombac, Squid and the yeah. Whale, and then all those like New York indies. Um, yeah. But anyway, so you're, you're oh, and yeah, Campion yeah. was later. Cause she was, she made Sweetie in 89, Angel mm. at my table and, so oh, I was man. seeing Campion in New York. I was in New York by then and watching Campion. So I guess I was watching Gillian Anderson, yeah. Jarmusch and Spike Lee, plus all the European canon and very wow. excited um, about them all. And I also in the early 80s, you know, Betty Gordon made Variety yeah. and yeah. she's my colleague at Columbia. And she was actually the first woman filmmaker I think I ever saw. Wow. Like really? in person, like, yeah. you know, put my eyes on, um, you know, when I came to New York, I saw her speak, but I, I think I had seen Variety earlier. Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. Uh, yeah. I love the drowning. Definitely. I saw that recently. So then yeah. you're watching these films. So you, there's, I mean, is there kind of a, 
a leap or um, maybe a, a small jump when, when you go from kind of watching these films and really liking what you're seeing, seeing this, um, you know, I guess not being kind of aware or not seeing the woman, the canon of female uh, filmmakers, but then wanting to really do this and make an impact. How do you go from that to kind of shooting, you know, super eights in your basement and then getting involved um, on set and stuff? Well, you know, the Super 8s in my basement, I think I was just trying to make arty films. And and I didn't, I had also painted a lot when I was mm. um, in my teens. I was interested in oil painting and also okay. probably not super achieved at it, but but just interested in it. So I knew I was trying to figure out, like I had no compunction about trying to make a film the way you might try and paint something. Like, oh, I'm going to figure mm. out what I'm good at. I have an image in my head. I'm going to film it. I have a poem I like. I'm going to try and film it. You know, yeah. I wasn't thinking hard, too hard about narrative. Right. Um, I was just trying to kind of figure out the medium and and what I was kind of good at or had to say. Um, when I got to New York, it became much more. I went to SVA actually mm. uh, as an undergrad, mm-hmm. um, and that's a super narrative school. It's an undergrad program. Um, in a lot of ways, I was very resistant to I think <laughs> to to I think any attempt to instruct me <laughs> in narrative, which is ironic because you know now I teach narrative at the graduate level at Columbia, yeah. and it's a very huh. heavily narrative program. And it's I think one of the things I'm probably okay at teaching is talking about narrative but I really took the long hard way to to learning about story structure and um you know sort of you know the journey of character and and really thinking hard about you know how film is really constructing an audience experience um when I began I was just thinking about my experience rather um with with unabashed narcissism (laughs) and and um uh, you know, suffered the consequence of that, I guess, uh, rightfully. But, but yeah, at the time, I like I said, it, it was a different time, and I was just literally trying to kind of trying to connect it to like, like I said, music and painting and these films that I saw. In hindsight, I'm sort of grateful because I wasn't trying to be anybody other than myself because mm-hmm. um, I just didn't know enough. And uh, it did take me a while though; like, it took me a long time. I I don't think I really started to understand narrative effectively actually until after i made sticky fingers of time um when i went to the sundance labs and really kind of got some education there you know about what story is and how to direct actors and and you know a lot of the stuff that is like i see very much at the core of what we teach at columbia And, you know, you know, if you pick, I I don't think I even bothered to pick up screenwriting books. Um, So I was really trying to self-teach the hard way for a very long time. Even when I was at SVA, I wasn't, I wasn't being sensible and learning from anybody who was smarter than me. Well, I mean, I know you went to the, you worked on the uh, Stephanie Daly. I mean, that was through Sundance, the Sundance Institute, right? So then before that. Yeah, that's how that film came about. Exactly. That's why I was there. What did you really? Pick, what do you think? In hindsight, you really picked up in um, you know school of visual arts. I mean, what did you? What were the pearls? Uh, that um, you kind of you still like used? I said. I I I think I was really happy to um, you know be among other filmmakers and have people to make films. Um, there was a screenwriter named Arnaud Dussault who taught there, and I realized in hindsight he was an atypical screenwriting teacher because we would just sit and sort of talk about life. And Mm. we would talk about the people in the screenplays like they were alive. (laughs) Like we didn't talk about structure and act one doesn't work. We just kind of talked about them like with he just wanted to have interesting conversations. And again, in hindsight, I think it was it was good because I I learned from him to value uh, what was mine and what was weird and singular and true, even if it didn't quite work yet. Mm. And the whole time I was sort of trying to find my own way into screenwriting in the interest of then directing them. And I think I was really convinced, just like I saw, again, I was, of course, by the time I'm in New York, I'm seeing Jane Campion um, sort of starting to do things with films that I hadn't seen before. And certainly Spike Lee was doing new things narrative structure and then eventually Tarantino comes into the picture somewhere out there but you know I I just had this sense then that narrative was and structure was a lot more fluid Mm. and that it was my job to do some reinvention um again I want to you know put forth that in hindsight I was naive and 
I didn't know enough to bend rules effectively. So it took me a long time, you know, to get sticky fingers of time to work. And there was a really wonderful uh, story editor named Jean Castelli at uh, mm-hmm. Good Machine, which is a major indie company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, sometime after graduation, while I was working in production, I don't know, being a PA or an AC or whatever mm-hmm. gig I could get, um, I met Jean and he liked some script. It was actually a different script. Yeah. And we became friends and he became just a really valuable reader uh, for me um, and sort of a mentor to me in learning about story. And I think Jean taught me a lot, actually, in that mm. informal capacity, this the sort of friend and mentor who was working at Good Machine. Um, and eventually Sticky was made through Good Machine, you know, which was wow. a company run by James Seamus and Ted Hope, you know, who were really giants of the New York indie scene. Yeah. So it took a while, but I landed in the, you know, in the, you know, under the wing of this like wonderful company um, and kind of learned a lot through my long development period with them. Uh, that it took to kind of end up making sticky fingers of time with them, which again, you know, it came about very quickly, but there had been lots of dialogue about this other script I was working with and, you know, a slow formation of kind of a professional proximity or creative proximity. Um, So I learned a lot there. (laughs) Like I said, I've done everything the slow, hard way, but, um, (laughs) you know, and, and that's kind of, I you know you just at a certain point in your life you just say oh yeah that's that was my story and that's yeah. okay yeah but uh, it doesn't have to be everybody else's story I think but the, it probably I mean should. I like uh, I mean I don't know I like the slow I think it, there's definitely value in that but that but if looking at Sticky because that is a masterpiece I love that film oh. um, it has this uh, it really is I mean it's um, I'm not just saying that it has this um, noir quality almost feels like it was. If you didn't know what year it was made, it could have been made in the fifties or sixties. I mean, um, there oh, is, you know, but one thing, one thing that I, um, I got from that because I, I saw your, um, you said something about it, which is don't reveal, you shouldn't reveal crucial plot details within the first ten minutes, which you learned from the festival circuit because people would come in late, <laughs> which is kind <laughs> of interesting. Course. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But in terms of that, because um, you're talking about time travel. And what is it like? The fir- first one is um, past. The second one is the present. Third one is the future. And then the fourth one is what is that? There's like the fourth um, one. The fifth one right? I, I think it's um, what could have been and what. Yeah, could exactly. Be. Yeah. So you know, is, these hypotheticals that live in our yeah. minds. Did yeah. that did that kind of form the crux or the conceit that led you to make sticky? I think so. I uh, hmm. you know it was a long time ago, so honestly, it's hard to remember, but. I think, like I said, I had this idea that I could chop time up. Yeah. And I could be inventive and my brain was fairly young and agile and that maybe film was a medium or one could do trippy things just by oh, yeah. moving them around in time. And so, yeah, it was this this idea that what if it wasn't just past, present, future, but there was like the sort of hypothetical categories, the, the emotional categories where we sit yeah. around and and think about what could we do later or what could happen. And, and that I think maybe was the thing was like, oh, I could make a low budget sci-fi that just slices and dices time and kind of mind games the audience without any special effects. Because, you know, this was a time when special effects cost money and time and I didn't have any of that. Yeah. Uh, but I would hopefully have the time to edit. And we shot in Williamsburg and Williamsburg right. hadn't popped into full coolness. I mean, it was cool, but it was still kind of scary and it looked like the 1950s. Yeah. So that's that's why we're like, that well, works. It's going to be a woman from the 50s coming forward. And I didn't really, I think, I didn't process it consciously, but I was interested. But I think I was starting to figure out I needed to maybe, you know, I was thinking, you know, it's interestingly, it's about a stuck writer from the 90s. And then there's a writer from the 50s who's a female writer who's writing under a pseudonym. Right, the Tucker. He travels, yeah. and who's kind of she's hard boiled. So I thought it would be interesting to to have these two women from two times have this creative interpersonal intersection within a a noir, you know, yeah. a new noir. I wanted to like play with noir and kind of reinvent it. Um, I think Sticky is a really good script. Honestly, I wish my mm. I wish I was a better filmmaker. Like I said oh, at the time, on, I made great. it. 
But I think it is sort of charming now. Like you can't shoot a film in 1997 and not have it be look sort of charming now. Um, what would you What would you have changed in hindsight? I, mean, I, you... I think in hindsight, um, well, honestly, it, it it needed a new, it needed a different budget or uh, a slightly different, maybe um, more organic style because we did this kind of pretty formal style which was great but i just think we you know we just had to sort of race through things and mm -hmm. uh, you know maybe i say that because you know pie came out the same year oh and yeah i went to sundance and we did not get into i'm like go pie mm -hmm. you know we got into venice and um toronto and, and uh south by southwest so sticky had a really nice festival run but we didn't get into sundance and i just like shot off the you know went bananas and is that um, with anthony hopkins am i thinking of the right one oh yeah. no it, it it was uh darren aronofsky's first feature oh yeah and, right. and uh you know there's like the sort of ravey house music and it's black and white and it's really energetic and it really mm. it really kind of did a physiological thing right and yeah. I think Sticky is is smart and funny and charming and edgy, but it was a much stiffer film in comparison, ironically, you know, <laughs> even though now it looks sort of edgy. I think next to Pi, it just didn't have the, it didn't have the like sheer racing fun. It was a more cerebral I don't know. I think Sticky ages, movie. having seen both films, I think Sticky ages well. Uh, oh, I mean, yeah, watching it now, I mean, it looks really interesting. It It is, it does feel like, Again, it wasn't made in the fifties, but it feels almost like a um like a I don't know, a perceptual sort of understanding of that time. But after that, after making that film, or I guess during that, how do you because the two principal female cast members, um, and I thought they definitely they obviously killed it and they feel like they're born of that period. How do you what is your approach to casting? I mean, how did you cast that? Well, it it was a very small budget film. So um you know, we didn't, it wasn't like people were handing us a pile of A-listers to look at, um, which is often something that happens when you're making an indie film. People are like, okay, to get the money, here, go cast somebody very famous yeah. and wonderful. Um, so interestingly, we really did just, we had a casting director and we looked at a lot of actors and, um, you know, Tarumi Matthews, uh, who played Tucker, was you know it, just marvelous, um, marvelous professional actress. Yeah. And actually, she was interestingly friends with Jean, so mm. I think that's how I met her. Mm -hmm. But she just had that kind of like beautiful kind of poise yeah. and smart, smart, subtle acting that I kind of go bananas for. And then you know Nicole Zaray, um, you know, was a young artist who did a lot of different things, including acting. She did performance art. She made her own movies and music and stuff like that. Um, so she she was kind of like, I think actually for that character, we were mostly looking at young kind of hybrid artist actors. Mm. And and we landed on her. And then the rest were cast somewhat conventionally. I'm just saying like the interesting thing was there wasn't the pressure to cast A-listers. Yeah. Uh, it was just like, go cast this movie <laughs> and, and find someone who's free when you're shooting and who will work for not that much money. Well, in that um, in that film, I mean, there's definitely like allusions to um, uh, and I use that with an A, not an I, but there are more allusions to this sort of romance, uh, you know, between women. Right. I mean, yeah. bit, so then was that something that you um, that you kind of wanted to portray in a certain way? I mean, did you get any? I don't know. I mean, I guess it was the 90s. It was still I don't I, I don't anticipate you got any controversy, but did you? I mean, was there anything said about that? Uh, um, so I felt, you know, Tucker conveys and from her actions, you can kind of, she, she's both involved with men and women. Mm. And um, Drew begins with a man, but ends up sort of romantically yeah, uh, attracted to her, but it doesn't get deeply into that whole awakening. One of the things I was interested in is seeing a movie where, frankly, my female characters had more fluid sexuality, but it wasn't the focus of the narrative. Right. I thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool if they could just run a sci-fi story yeah. and it's about the sci-fi or in this case the the low there's a little murder mystery but it's not a coming out film mm -hmm. i mean i love coming out films but i just thought wouldn't it be great to just see these interesting characters you know stewarding another story just like it was no big deal <laughs> yeah. you know what i mean again just like you think about sci-fi films from the 50s you just kind of 
it's not maybe there's a love interest, but it's not about sexuality right. so much yeah. as it is something else. You know, sci-fi is often driven by something other than sexuality. Um, and really the focus of sticky is creativity. Mm-hmm. What does it take to be creative for this yeah. one character? It's actually a film about, I think, overcoming, you know, overcoming a perception that you can't make something. I mean, I know that doesn't sound very sexy when I say no, 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 it, it's true. but that's I, I what's remember. underneath all this time travel stuff is, you know, kind of trying to get the audience to feel what a creative awakening feels like. Um, and that's what the romance serves. That's what the friendship in the movie serves. So what happens after, after Sticky? I mean, what's your kind of next, what do you do next? Um, I mean, I guess Stephanie, I, then guess I tried to make a bunch of other movies and yeah. I didn't succeed. Okay. <laughs> and, um, like there were a couple other scripts I tried very hard to make after Sticky and, and yeah. couldn't get them off the ground. And actually Stephanie Daly was sort of a last ditch script effort. Hmm. Like I was like, I'm going to try and, I'm going to write one more script. And Stephanie Daly is a very serious drama. Like it's a kind of dark psychological film. There are comedic moments. Uh, that's, yeah. that's true. Especially like but, with Gaffigan in that church. I mean, that's funny. It's like, oh, this speech is about me. Like, you know. It's true. I guess the, yeah. the thing is, the the scripts I was trying to make after Sticky, frankly, were more stylized and whimsical and frankly, higher budget. Mm-hmm. And it would have been interesting if I could have made those films, but I, I didn't. Um you know, I couldn't get them made. Yeah. Um, you know, so whatever that body of work is went away, you know, it's gone. Um, but the the I ironically, I was like, well, I'm gonna write a film that's about something that scares me hmm. and see if I can get that to move. And then I'm gonna stop trying to write shit and I'm gonna I'm gonna stop trying to write things yeah. and I'm going to uh, do something else with my life. Like it was one of those moments where I'm like, let me try one more script and try something really different. And that's when I kind of began this investigation into, you know, a young character accused of infanticide and, a, uh, you know, a sort of more adult woman uh, thinking about, um, you know, her trying own, to manage her pregnancy, yeah, exactly. you know. And so all of a sudden I was writing something I'd never thought I'd write, which is a dark psychological naturalistic drama. Um, and uh, it was very new and scary for me to do that at the time. It wasn't the more sort of, um, I, I keep saying whimsical, but ironically, the movies I didn't make, frankly, would have been more pop culture, but they never mm. came to be. But anyway, so I did that and and I wrote a film about stuff that scared me and interested me and uh, interest in the, the Sundance Labs accepted it, um, much to my surprise. And, and then I got there and sort of started to learn about directing actors and yeah. what it what it feels like to hand a performance over to an actor and, um, you know, made that film, uh, much to my surprise. Like I said, that my, my twins came, um, you know, in, in, uh, 2002, they were born. And then, you know, this film was shot in 2005. So I was just Mm. really frankly shocked. Like I started writing it before I had kids and went to the Sundance labs, I think in, uh, 2001, and then it didn't get produced until 2004, 2005, 2006. Like, you know, it started to move again. I found a producer and the script started to move and was made, you know, the shot in sort of shot edited between 2005 and 2007 yeah. and then released 2007, excuse me. Um, so it was a long trajectory and it was weird because I wrote this script before I had children and then yeah. I directed it when they were a few years old. Wow. And, you know, in that pause, of course, I was just trying to take care of twins but mm. um, and manage that. Um, but I didn't know if I'd ever make another movie. You know, I'd written the script, I'd gone to the lab and I kind of thought it was over. But uh, the lab connected me with uh, some really amazing young producers. Um, and that film, again, because it actually was a huge kind of production, lots of locations, actors, yeah. et cetera, with so many moving parts. We had this incredible team of uh, producers on it. <laughs> we, we had more than the, I mean, I had great producers on Sticky too. But the interesting thing is we actually kind of needed this large team right. that somehow miraculously appeared for that movie and it got made you know, at a million, but I think the film actually looks like more because yeah. they're optimizing it. And I do want to say my my producers on Sticky were astonishing too. Yeah. 
That was Susan Stover, no, Isaac Robbins, and the Good Machine team. But, you know, it's interesting. There have been different producer producing teams are really important to films and to mm-hmm. how they come out and how they feel. And, and um, you know, that part is as important. It's, it's, it's perhaps the most, frankly, the most essential creative collaboration there is. Yeah. Well, I mean, on 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 sticky, um, there's definitely you're setting the stage at a certain time. I mean, you're definitely painting. You mentioned, you know, about your kind of origins and and painting and being, um, you know, and making art. But there's definitely an element to setting the stage in terms of what era that that uh, story takes place in. Whereas, in if you look at Stephanie Daly, I mean, that's definitely very character driven, and yeah. it's you're talking about more of a contemporary. Day. So in terms of those, another element of that is, I mean, the actors and the performances, which are just incredible. I mean, Phyllis Swinton and, um, you know, Amber is great and obviously Dennis O'Hare, who I love. So how do you, because um, they it definitely feels like, and I guess this is the the idea or the um, the intention with any performance, but they're, the lines that you've written definitely feel like their own. So what what in terms of, you know, your direction, and I guess this goes hand in hand with the casting too, but how do you, how do you take something that you've written and make make it feel like it's the actor's or the character's own sort of words? I mean, how do you do that? Well, I, you know, the good news is with good actors, they do it. And I guess with gratitude, I am always very happy when anything I've written gets into the hands of a good actor because I get very annoyed hearing my own voice and my own scripts especially when I'm trying to create characters, yeah. you know, who, who, who aren't exactly me, you know, I, I want to have, I want to hear other voices. Um, and so I do shape the script a little bit as soon as I start working with any actor. And I think mm-hmm. one nice thing about right being a writer director is you can just, you can hack that script apart if you want, no one without feeling guilty. Um, you know, you know, you're there to revise with the actors you know that you're then going to do that again in the edit room you know so i feel like if i'm a good screenwriter it's only because of my actors and my editors too like that that the writing gets better in those phases and i'm pretty open to it you know you always kind of you know want to hold on to the core of what you wrote to make sure you don't miss anything but it's exciting to see that evolution happen. And some of it is, you know, you're talking it through and you're making changes because you see logic changing. And sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you do a bit of improv or sometimes an actor says, can I not say this? And you're like, yeah, and then you have, you know, an edit. And sometimes they're like, can I say this? And said, like, great. Um, uh, so it's back and forth. Um, I don't think there's like a lot of pure improv that that happens in my films they're pretty tightly scripted but i would say that the screenwriting continues until the picture's locked you know on set in the edit room you know that writing is there to evolve um it's it's a scaffolding and it's intended to turn into something better yeah, that's interesting. I mean, uh, yeah, Timothy Hutton too, man. So then, yeah. um, going going to the next, because you uh, you ended up adapting. Innocence was an adaptation of a book, right? So that's where the material. Yeah, a really gorgeous, gorgeous um, yeah. book by uh, Jane Mendelson. Um, and you know, in this case, I'll I'll risk saying something um, provocative. I don't okay. feel that I directed that film, um, hmm. nor that I actually uh, successfully you know, co-wrote the adaptation. It, it was mm. changed uh, rather drastically throughout the process by a financier. I worked with extraordinary producers on this project as well. And I think, um, you know, the financier had really strong ideas. We just weren't a match. And, um, you know, those ideas extended into the territory of directing. So I certainly see some of my staging. I see some of my writing, but but uh, I didn't have the kind of author- authorship on on that film ultimately that I hoped to. Although the initial development of it was really amazing and fun and organic when I worked with Jane Mendelson um, and our original team of producers, that was a thrill. I wanted to make something more um, larger budget horror genre. Yeah. I, I set out to make something that would be sort of a you know, uh, a reversal or fun flip of like some of the feeling of twilight, you know, more androgynous teenagers and edginess. By the end of that film, I think we kind of made a pale ode to twilight, which is kind of tragic. Um, Mm. 
it wasn't what was intended. I I can't, I certainly don't want to pass off blame to anyone. Collaborations yeah. are just that. They're collaborations. Sure. Everybody has to take responsibility for their part. And um, that experience for me was very creatively disassembling, if that makes any sense. Mm. It was the film that took me apart. Um, oh, wow. Every other film that I made had made me stronger and more confident. And that was the film that, you know, within which I was, I, I either destroyed myself or was allowed to be destroyed or was destroyed, you know, um, you know, depending on, on, uh, you know, what day I would think about it, probably all of the above. Um, And I did work with some extraordinary actors and have some, an amazing crew and just like all kinds of great things happened during it. I just, you know, I generally don't list that film under the films that I've made because I don't feel I've authored it in the same way that I have other films. Ultimately, I'm grateful for the experience. Ultimately, I'm grateful for what it gave me and what I learned. Um, profoundly grateful. Is is but, adapting something that you would plan to do in the future? I mean, with like a different project or a different set of circumstances? I certainly would do it because like I said, the initial, you know, up to the point of financing, we were doing great and it was wonderful. And I also want to say that, you know, this was a financing uh, kind of thing where financing and creativity overlapped. And this happens to a lot of films. You know, yeah. they 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 get muddled when, you know, the people financing aren't on the same page as the people making their creative <laughs> decisions. And, yeah. um, you know, I think it, until South Mountain, I've never had contractually had a uh, final cut, but it didn't matter except with Innocence where it did matter. Like I, I, you know, with sticky fingers of time, I didn't contractually have final cut, but I had final cut, you know, I got to make the movie I wanted to make. And, and, you know, I, they, you know, my producers gave me great hard notes and sometimes I griped about it and I'm sure, you know, they probably wanted to gripe about me. Same with stuff daily, but ultimately I think we, we all made a movie. We felt like, yeah, that's the movie we wanted to make hundred percent. You know, we came through it and an instant we didn't. And, uh, I think that's, you know, that happens to movies. I feel like I can kind of see it now. Like if I see, usually it's a studio film, I can see, okay, there yeah. were too many authors there. And right. and you don't want to point fingers and say who had the bad idea, but you feel like, okay, somehow there there wasn't there wasn't a, a solid producing, directing, or financing, directing team here. And something was, or, you know, I mean, maybe it happens with cast sometimes. But again, yeah, collaboration is powerful. Yeah. And it can be powerfully transformative in good ways and it can also go wrong. And I think if you're going to, you know, it's like if you're going to play in the arena, you're going to lose some. And uh certainly having gone through that experience, I don't think I actually don't worry that it would happen again because I'd see it coming and and I I wouldn't wait as long to just sort of say, okay, let's clean this up. Time to fire me, you know, and, and that's really what should have happened. <laughs> so I think I should have been fired a lot earlier for my sake and everybody else's because uh, it wasn't my movie, you know, and, yeah. and um, uh, you know, it wasn't even really, it became a movie I wasn't really excited about. I was just finishing it because I'm a finisher. I tend to commit to things and that's always just been part of my personality. Having been through that, I feel like, you know, I can I could see these things coming. But what really shifted, too, is, you know, like I said, I'm a full time teacher. So um, I, I feel like after Innocence, one, I didn't think I could go into the studio system and get another film made. I didn't even know if I could within the world of um, private equity because I didn't think mm. it was good enough. And um, the other thing was I didn't want to wait another 10 years, you know, like or seven years. Because yeah. my films are few and far between. Um, and DSLR filmmaking had come about. And I was like, hey, that's a lot like, uh, you Super know, that's eight. a lot like Super 8, except it looks great. Yeah. Uh, I think I literally kind of woke up and was like, well, I'm kind of feeling blue about filmmaking. And my husband is a cinematographer. He shot Sticky Fingers of Time and he shot oh, wow. Top Mountain. Mm. Um, and, you know, I was working with an amazing cinematographer for Steph Daly and for um, Innocence named David Morrison. Um, and, you know, I'm I, part of it's because he's fantastic. I'll, the other part yeah. was we had these little kids. So when you have little kids, but you don't have a huge nanny budget in the, 
like somebody has to be there for the kids. So mm. uh, that was why one reason we weren't working on those two films together. Um, but, you know, we were able to work again on South Mountain because the kids were old enough and yeah. uh, they they could just help. Anyway, so I, I was like, you know, he's got a camera sitting in that closet and right. I could be cutting this on my laptop. And I did yeah. cut it on my laptop. I cut it in the free version of DaVinci Resolve, South Mountain. Um, and it was shot wow. on a Sony A7S. Um, uh, so, you know, it, it, it was interesting. It was full circle. It was like, I need to make something. I need to fit it in when I can schedule my sabbatical from Columbia so that if finance, you know, I, I can't be at the whim of uh, financing and casting giant movie stars i i um you know i can't like get pushed a year or wait i just have to make something and get my mojo back yeah and um so i wrote south mountain for the money i thought i could raise um for the resources i thought i had and uh you know within a couple of years i'd made it so yeah. you know that that was a project that came directly out of innocence a oh, reaction wow, really? to it because i i, I couldn't do what that was you know innocence took a really long time to get made like we were trying to finance it many times uh, mm. before it finally got made so part of the issue with innocence was the creative differences but also it was how long it took mm. and so when you asked me hey are you gonna go out there again i'm like well yeah. you know i i i can't you know films take two like on a good day they take two three years to make right and um you know, if, if everything comes in quickly yeah, yeah. and, and they can take more. And I really look back and if I have one, I don't want to say maybe, well, maybe it is a regret. I wish I made more films, um, particularly before Sticky, after Sticky, before Steph Daly. I wish that period where I was in my twenties, thirties, early forties, I wish I made more films. I wish I had a bigger body of work. There's still um, time. There and is, even yes. in the body of work, <laughs> I mean, uh, look at, um, uh, like Rebecca Miller or someone like that. I mean, there's not a lot of films, but they're like, they're gems. So, wow. I mean, it oh, kind of stands yes. stands by itself, right? Well, looking at South Mountain, which by the way, in terms of, uh, I didn't know that your husband was the um, the DP on Sticky and that, because it looks fantastic. So that, again, um, shooting in New York, but I guess more upstate, where exactly did you shoot that? <laughs> we shot that in uh, West Shoka, New York. Um, yeah. My That was my mom's house, like, we oh, kind wow. of literally my mom went camping for a month or <laughs> and then she moved in with us the production and yeah. let us so it's some of her things but i mean it doesn't really look like it looks looks like when she lives there although some of her possessions are there um a very green very green so i wrote for that house and it's a really interesting house to film in because of um you know it has windows and doors to all four points it's kind of up on a hill uh, mm. So it's very interesting to light. And actually, it's a great house to shoot in because it is small, which might not make any sense. Not a great house to hold a production in, mm -hmm. you know, to stage a production, to put everybody and fit everybody, which is one reason it, it worked for being so tiny. You know, we didn't have a lighting and grip. It was basically my oh, husband really? was shooting. Wow. Um, we had an AC who's also a producer, and um, yet my co-editor Maria Rosenblum was the AC. So mm -hmm. my husband was, you know, shooting and operating. Maria was ACing, and um, you know, people would every now and then somebody would set up a reflector or a silk or a flag or a tiny little light. Like our lighting kit fit in the back of the minivan, and then we wow. rented some larger silks for some that. So it was a really tiny tiny footprint film um, it looks really expensive when you see it it looks i mean it, it looks like it's uh maybe it's just shooting in the right conditions uh waiting for the right level of light or just having the right i guess when you um yeah. when you're dp and also you uh and you had experience um you know working at that budget you kind of i guess maybe have a better sense of like when to shoot certain things and um how um I don't know, like the uh, you just mentioned about the house, like uh, seeing that yeah. that's conducive to shoot in the first place. I mean, that I guess that comes from experience, right? You don't know that right off the well, bat. I mean, I, I guess, Ian, I didn't finish quite. I kind of got lost there in that sentence. But the reason it's so nice to stage in is because people are naturally compressed by the architecture. So they're framed by mm. windows and doors. You know, if you're shooting someone in the kitchen, you know, 
you can see the tiny little dining area behind them. So there, you know, if someone's crossing the house, it takes five big strides. You know, you're not trying to compress space. It's organically connected and, and intimately framed. It looks bigger on screen than it is. The hard part is you you can't you don't have room to stage everyone. But I think on the on the lens it looks it on screen it it, it really worked well. Yeah. Um and we did actually um I had we me and Ethan had made not one but two sort of little short film studies to practice. I wasn't convinced at this point I knew that I was a, a serial optimist and should not be trusted to, you know, to, to always think everything's going to work out when it won't. So I made sort of two practice films to see what it would feel like to shoot with a tiny, tiny crew in this particular space um, on this camera. So, so what was interesting was we did practice before we got there and then I I really scheduled and I've never done this because I'm not a great scheduler, usually in AD schedules, but I had I had done some of the initial schedule drafts. Mm. Um, I had literally photo boarded and um, studied where the sun would be wow. and thought about where everything would be shot at what time of day and then mm. had some backup plans so that this film was largely able to be made, filmed very quickly with natural light because you kind of knew where the light would be. Um, yeah. Ethan did supplement, um, you know, and and tweak things a lot. And I was very, very lucky because he's super experienced. So one, he can, you know, pull focus. And two, he's very good at like, here's the situation. Here's what you got. Here's how you can make it work mm. quickly um, with with minimal impact. And, um, you know, even it, there's a, there's an extra on the DVD it's not super high production value, but I made like a behind the scenes oh, where really? I talk a little bit and and you can get a sense of the scale of the production. It's just like a seven minute behind the scene, the scale of the production and how we approach the shooting um, of it. And of course, digital technology is amazing. You can shoot in the dark, you know, yeah. you know, th- these cameras can really see a lot that you couldn't see in film. You had to add lights and <laughs> they were big, hot, heavy lights. Now we have tiny little LEDs, which I, I never loved the way they look, but, you know, they they aren't hot, they aren't heavy, they're inexpensive, and so you can fill in a little light like that. So we really use the natural light to structure the look of the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Ethan shot it with prime lenses, which was an important decision he fought for, and he was absolutely right. And I think that actually helps that sense of have, let the film have a sense of um, discipline and cinema you know, mm. that's bigger than its budget. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so the it, it's a film that I think is very uh, well suited to, to, to digital. Um, most of it was shot, you know, 19 in um, 1980 high. So it wasn't shot in 4K. It was up res to 2K in post. Oh, interesting. Huh. Only the sort of some of the a few second unit shots were 4K because we were also the luxury of shooting at that low budget is we were able to um, like I was just able to go back and like get that shot of the Redding tomato go yeah. to the top of the mountain. We just kind of drove up and got that. You never get that on a low budget production. Nobody wants to spend time and money on second unit or pay for a crew to go back and get a shot of a hill or a flower or, yeah. <laughs> or even just photographs being looked at. You know, it, we were able to, the homespun thing meant we were able to really optimize um, principal photography and then get some of the the nature that's in the film that I think is important. We were able to just go back and get. But then um, in terms of the di- dialogue, I mean, it's definitely suited to that, um, that setting and then also f- those actors. Uh, oh, I mean, I know. Uh, you know, Balsam is incredible. And then also Scott Cohen, who I love. So yeah. then um, in terms of that, um, that script, and there's definitely, I don't know if I would call that, I mean, that's probably not a comedy, but there's a lot of comedic moments in that too. So when you write comedic, um, I guess, underpinnings, is that is that to kind of deflate tension when it gets a little bit rough for the, for the audience? Or is that because you feel like it makes the story flow better in a certain way? Um, you know, the, the tragedy is I never try and write comedy. I think suffering yeah. is just innately funny, you know. Um, I mean, that dr- the dr- when she drugs him, that's funny. Yes. Well, there's te- tension. Like, look, you know, there are much smarter people who write about the line between tragedy and comedy, but they're both based in 
awkwardness, people yeah. overextended, people wildly exposed. You know, that's one reason Jim Gaffigan is such an incredible dramatic actor. These, you know, comic actors can go right there. And yeah. dramatic actors are going to be funny sometimes because they're right there. It's honest. It's awkward. It surprises yeah. you. There's a jolt of tension. So, yes, the poisoning is is funny because it's so painful. And of course, any I think any family drama, if it's not funny, we all have to go home. You can't, yeah. you know, I think the thing about a family drama is it's deeply felt, but you, you it's almost always inherently funny. <laughs> I don't know why, but um, maybe that's just my feeling. Like if you can't laugh at it, how do you yeah. survive? So I think I think there's a lack of self-consciousness that maybe allows the humor to be, there's no violent, tiny violins. Like we were always pushing away the tiny violins. Um, we we're actually structuring it more like a horror film. And I do think at times it is very funny, um, yeah. but that's because people are funny you yeah. know, for the same, especially because they love each other. They don't hate each other. It's not, the film is actually, a lot of things happen and they're dark, but it's actually one of my most optimistic films. Yeah, no, I think so. <laughs> think about I, it. It has kind of a happy ending. Yeah, in well, it's mind. it's interesting. Um, I mean, there's definitely an element of psychology that I see. I mean, in Stephanie Daly, in Innocence also, but then also here in South Mountain. I mean, um, I think uh, in those other films, there's, there's a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I mean, you have a very direct mm. relationship and kind of exploring the mind. I guess the psychiatrist and um in a sense is pretty dubious i mean you find that at the end but in south mountain i think cohen's character is interesting because there's a moment when he's yeah. about to be drugged and um he kind of is uh he starts becoming quite distant it almost feels like he's breaking he's so cool with um his life that it's completely changed whereas balsam is kind of struggling to kind of uh, come to grips with it and keep holding on to him in this uh kind of strange way so when you think about that was that um when you saw what the actors brought to that, were you kind of, did anything sort of uh, surprise you? Were you directing that specifically to kind of create this yin of yang of someone is trying to push um, themselves onto someone else and then the other person is kind of pulling away at the same time? I think, you know, they both just were really masterful. I mean, Talia, just her script analysis and sort of ownership of this character. I, I could barely keep up with what she was doing. I knew it was good, but I was like, she's doing something. She knows what she's doing. And and it works, you know. And again, it, it happened very quickly that, you know, it's an amazing moment when you give your script over to an actual actor and mm. it becomes the, you know, you take, you become co-parents of this character. Yeah. Um, but maybe, or maybe you actually want to say, you know, they become that character and you become more like a parent and a parent's job to some degree is like try and keep people online and remind them where they're from, but let them go, yeah. <laughs> be supportive, let them do their thing, let them be them. And, um, you know, Talia kind of knew exactly what she wanted to do with this character and she came mm -hmm. in kind of fully prepped. And um, Scott also did. And I mean, for Scott, I could immediately sense his big heart and, and, um, he brought a lot of heart to this character. He wasn't afraid to let uh, that character kind of, you know, do frankly kind of shitty things. And he's yeah. the guy that leaves. And and every now and then um, people come up to me and are like, you, you know, boy, you weren't very, boy, that guy was terrible. Like not the actor, but the character was what a bad yeah. guy. And then every now and then people were like, he wasn't bad enough or Hey, he's a good guy. Why didn't he get more resolution? Couldn't we have spent more time? He deserves oh, more catharsis. So I get a mm. real range of react. Like everyone kind of, you know, is right on point. Uh, Tali's yeah. brilliant. Everyone loves Scott. You know, he was extraordinarily generous and he gave it a full leading man range. Yeah. You know, this is a whole person with all the complexity. If this were a limited series TV show, mm. There'd be That'd more be room in, in a structured film. You really generally have one protagonist and Lila's the person whose story we're really tracking uh, and being framed by. So I think it it is it was challenging for Scott to balance the way that his character would one day be, you know, but he did it so masterfully. I mean, There's something yeah. I struggled with. One day he's the love object. The next day he's the bad guy. You know, he shifts <laughs> within the audience experience a lot. Yeah. 
as as Lila's perception of him changes. Um, but what was amazing about Scott was his heart was there the whole time. Yeah. So even if he's being cold to her, like you just feel his kind of charisma and that he's still the dad and he's still like he hasn't turned into a different human. Um, and I thought that was really masterful that that, you know, he probably one, he's a great actor, but two, mm-hmm. he has enough wisdom about life yeah. and confidence to to not worry about what he might look like to people. And I think that's the underlying brilliance of it. And Talia also just understood the full range of what was happening with her character, who also is sort of a different person on different days, as are we all. Yeah. And she's playing a depressive character. And it's something I was very scared to write because you don't want a depressive character to come across as depressing because an audience will push them away. And Talia's character is fighting for love every moment on screen in one way or another. And that keeps us glued to her. And know, then also that, that dynamic with her friend who's dying of cancer. I mean, that that's yeah. also kind of a part of the glue that's holding us to her, yeah. right? A little bit. So that, exactly. that would be an interesting miniseries to explore. But in terms of uh, yeah. when do you when do you come to Columbia? When do I come to Columbia? When, when I mean, did you come? Um, I think I started in 2009 and I think Uh, this is what we were talking about at the beginning yeah yeah. so um, in terms of that um, have you as we kind of I mean wrap up have you um, how is that experience different because you I mean you mentioned the school of visual arts experience um, and you kind of I guess got some structural components there and maybe some you know kind of blending that with your awareness and interest in narrative but what do you what do you try to kind of give to your students in your current role i mean how do you how do you transfer that experience or maybe use all the experiences that you've had on all these films that you've written and directed to kind of um you know impart this wisdom to your students how do you how do you take one experience and give it to someone else well you know i think i've become a better sort of story smith or coach as i get older uh and just experienced around their stories and their storytelling. And of course, if you teach for a few years, you start to become familiar with sort of the artist journey and how you can support students as they as they sort of open them, themselves up as individuals to what's challenging, you know, and know to, well, there's certain commonalities in what we teach. And like I said, a whole lot of what we're teaching, the mechanics is about um, understanding that filmmaking is about exploring yourself, but ultimately you're building an experience for an audience sort of like an architect you're building a house for somebody to live in or walk around right. or do something in and and that's always kind of a mind opening thing about craft so it's not like here's how act one two three works is really about for me at least i i most strongly emphasize okay become aware of what your shot is saying to other people <laughs> in terms of story and or emotion and movement because developing that awareness of how it's going to play in an audience's mind. And um, that's the key element of craft in terms of journey. You know, I really try and keep that thing I had from childhood of even if it doesn't work, don't lose yourself and what you're trying to say. Mm. You know, it's worth it. Some of the, you know, we are, film language is meant to evolve. And, um, you know, there's been a revolution, I think, in terms of um, an awareness of how limited the scope of representation has been for so many years. And I didn't really have a full sense of it as I emerged in terms of uh, gender, but also race, ethnicity, identity, you know, identity. Uh, and, and so I think there are a lot of tropes that need to be reversed, and there are still a lot of new stories to tell, and some of them are going to just require a sort of you know, different filmmaking rhythms and techniques and language. So I do try to encourage students um, not just to, you know, copy the masters yeah. uh, in terms of grammar, but to also find the grammar that tells their story, find their way around being comfortable creating their own poetics, you know, within the basic parameters of like narrative traffic rules, you know. Uh, which which do exist, and you do need three act structure, and you know there's certain things that that really hold steady. But yeah. within that, I try and just like protect that thing I had as a kid uh, playing 
jazz of, you know, trusting, trusting yourself, your work to find its form. Well, I really love, uh, again, all your work, and I love uh, the grammar that kind of governs your your stories, and um, I think they definitely are timeless and also really relevant. Um, so I really wanted to thank you for all of that, and thanks so much for, for being on my show. I really, uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. Sure, it was fun, and let me know if you need anything else. Sake, but my own.